Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. I'm Petra Alderman, an associate researcher at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies at the University of Copenhagen and a postdoctoral research fellow at the International Development Department at the University of Birmingham. In this episode, I am joined by Jamjira Sombat Punseri, an assistant professor and project leader at the Institute of Asian Studies at the Chulalongkorn University in Thailand, and a research fellow at the German Institute for Global and Area Studies. Jamjira's research has been primarily concerned with nonviolent protest movements, civic space, authoritarian civil society, and mostly recently, digital repression in autocracies. I had the pleasure of meeting Janjira at an academic conference last year, and we have been in contact ever since, as I am deeply fascinated by her work on digital repression in Thailand. So I am very pleased that she has accepted my invitation to talk to me about her research on the Nordic Asia podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Janjira. Thank you for the invitation, Petra. Glad to be here. Before we delve deep into talking about digital repression in Thailand, I would really like to know when and how did you actually become interested in this topic? Was it something in relation with the 2020-2021 student protests or was this an area of research interest that you developed before that? As you might know, my expertise is on social movements, civic activism, nonviolent actions. But back in 2018, I noticed something strange on social media, I came across articles on Facebook pages, on very dubious pages that published this information mm-hmm. about anti-junta activists. These are young people who were protesting against the military uh, government since after the coup in 2014. A lot of these storylines sound very familiar to me. They are drawn on conspiracy theories about how the U.S., the CAA, and other international organizations like Jaws Soros, Open Society Foundation, so on and so forth, supported pro-democracy movements in Thailand in order to consolidate Western hegemony in Southeast Asia. This kind of conspiracy theory is not new in Thailand, but the fact that it's being coupled with uh, the political context right after the coup and the way in which it was conveyed unfavorable to the opposition was quite interesting for me. So from that point, I followed the development. And then I think we started to see the intensity of this kind of online attacks to stigmatize and discredit the opposition movements before the election in 2019. And then, like you said, the bigger wave was, of course, in response to um, anti-establishment protests in 2020 and 2021. We know that following the 2014 coup, the military junta that took power in Thailand, the National Council for Peace and Order, was one of the harshest military juntas um, in the recent Thai history, at least. So I think compared to some of the previous military regimes, this was definitely the harshest since the 1970s or so. If we look at where Thailand is now, how serious an issue is a digital repression in Thailand? The autocratic entrenchment, basically the staying power 
of the ruling elites from 2014, that state power is intertwined with this use of sophisticated technologies and information operations to suppress and restrict dissent and actually co-opt social media. And I think the trend has been gradual and creeping in a way that is growing without any major acknowledgement from civil society and even political parties up until recently. And I would even say that there are a couple of patterns of this development. One is that back in 2007, after the coup in 2006, the control measures of the internet emerged. So the military and the police and other elite actors kind of focused on how to block content on the internet and basically filter websites for, for Thai citizens. So there are certain websites that we shouldn't see, at least are monarchy related. But then what gets increasingly sophisticated is how the control measures have morphed into co-optation and manipulation tactics. Co-optation is probably, we'll talk about that in detail later, but it's how ruling elites and security agencies, and particularly the Ministry of Digital uh, Economy and Society, have convinced and at times forced hand internet service providers to begin with to keep track of citizens' activities on the internet. Internet service providers in Thailand have to comply with that because they are domestic service providers and they have to rely on the government and state agencies. So, you know, whatever data, well, we're talking about user data, as we are now using Zoom, and I'm using Zoom with true internet, trying not to name names, my data, every bit, every activities, everything that I do online would be kept by true internet and it can be used. The police can access that, the police can use that, actually for good reasons sometimes, for crime suppression, for a lot of good things, law enforcement. But it can be also abused to monitor dissidents. So that's cooptation. And later, the cooptation measure basically uh, starts uh, to spill over to social media companies, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Although these companies are different from domestic internet providers in that they are based in the U.S. mostly, or TikTok, for example, is Chinese-owned company. But these are foreign entities, and it's difficult to ask them to comply with the Thai law. So the influence that the government have, has to exercise on these foreign entities is different, but still, they start to co-opt and incentivize and sometimes threaten companies to work with them. And last but not least, manipulation. This is where the Thai media and political figures identify as I.O., information operation campaigns. It's not only information operations, it's more than that right now. Information operations on the internet in Thailand start off as something quite simple. You will see like touts or posts that would say something repetitive and not very creative on social media and, you know, using coarse language to comment on dissidents' posts, things like that, right? So basically to troll other people online. 
But what we're seeing right now, actually from 2021 onwards, the level of information manipulation is getting more sophisticated and more discreet, actually. Um, observing a number of Twitter accounts right now, you start to see accounts that do not just troll people. They start to post about their personal issues, their personal stuff, going here and there, eating, you know, lifestyle, non-political stuff, mm -hmm. right? But then whenever they post about politics, it's usually to frame dissidents in, in ways, you know, that the usual discourse is that they are against the monarchy, they are against the nation, but lately sometimes it's about exposing how these activists are so uh, hypocritical, they don't have any moral credibility most of the time to do what they're doing. So I think this, this kind of evolution for me from controlling the internet to co-opting and manipulating digital space is quite fascinating. Indeed. And when you mention these Twitter accounts, are these Twitter accounts linked to individuals who are, as you said, perhaps co-opted, or are they some of these fake accounts, so technically operated by the Thai state, but, you know, under the fake names and pretends that it is a person with interests and so on and so forth? I have no expertise in kind of quantifying. You need software to detect whether or not the accounts are human-made or robots or automated. But as far as I can say, based on the existing evidence and kind of digital forensics that other people did, I would say that these accounts are run by people at scale. For example, the accounts I'm following right now the ones that gain traction, and which is quite a lot right now, could have followers of tens of thousands. I mean, I don't mm -hmm. even have that many followers on Twitter. But when you go into their follower page, what you see is like if you open different Facebook following pages of different accounts at the same time, and you scroll down and compare these follower pages, they are almost uh, identical. If you're doing detective work, you start to ask yourself a question, why? I mean, of course, we, you know, you and me, maybe we have overlapping friends, people that we follow, but to have tens of thousands of followers that are very similar, I think is, is rare. I have recently observed that these are not entirely natural. And those who study these sort of things quite long time can actually trace when the accounts were founded and when the number of followers skyrocketed. It's sometimes overnight. Recently, I've heard, because there are new, new tricks every day, on Facebook, for example, I've heard that you can grow your Facebook followers to maybe tens of thousands of followers, sometimes hundreds of thousands. And these Facebook pages initially were not political. But then once you grow for followers, you can sell these pages to anyone who wants to repurpose the pages. And they get the same followers, like the same number, but the buyers just insert um, their own messages. These are not necessarily evil in themselves. My political marketing people use these tricks, right? What gets problematic is that, number one, the funding. 
mm. that goes into this activity is public revenues. That means it's state sanctioned. It's used uh, money that is supposed to improve our life because we pay tax as citizens. Number two, these accounts sometimes spread hateful and harmful messages, and it actually sows polarization in the country. So basically, hatred is now funded by tax revenues. Number three, the interplay between digital repression and autocracy in Thailand is quite close. So what, what you're seeing is how autocracy can be entrenched by the use of digital tactics and social media to shift the balance of powers towards ruling parties or needs. Let me just reverse you a little bit back. You mentioned information operations a few times. And I know that information operations and military concept and the practice itself was something that's been used in Thailand for decades, um, actually going back to the counter-communist insurgency back in sort of the mid-1960s, when the Thai state really started using the information operation. And it has been using it ever since. In the Thai context, what was always interesting, at least to my mind, was that information operation was used as a tool against the Thai population itself rather than some kind of external enemy. And I've always wondered, you know, how far has Thailand moved from this information operation mindset? And you've already started talking that there has been some kind of development, but is this maybe information operation just, you know, using some different tools or, or slightly, or do you see some kind of departure from these, these concepts? I think it's both. Like you said, the army at least and ruling elites understand that they are engaging in an information warfare. The way I explain what is happening in Thailand and, and a, a lot of autocracies when it comes to information operations and disinformation the buzzwords this day is that you cannot compare what happens in countries like the US, the UK, you know, Brexit, and Germany uh, with Thailand um, and Turkey and other emerging autocracies, because however problematic these democracies can be, the information flow is still not restricted. And therefore, it opens space for right-wing groups to voice their political agenda and extremist groups to spread hate against minorities, so on and so forth. But in Thailand, what happens is that while we have horizontal dimension of information environment, like other autocracies, the vertical dimension of information environment do exist. I'm, what I mean is that there's information control. There is the use of law against internet users. And this two dimensions merge when you have both state-sponsored information operation that manipulate information online on the one hand, but on the other, in order for the control of the information landscape to work, you also have to suppress competing narratives, right? By charging online activists, dissidents, human rights defenders, or whoever, uh, cause anything that is deviating from the official narrative. So information operation in Thailand is situated in these two dimensions. And so the reason why I said it's both 
old and new wine is that all because the military has done this before and the elites do this because they understand that they are in an information warfare like in the old times right what has changed is the toolkits during the communist suppression campaigns in the 70s the kind of repression could be bloody there was like massacres there was assassination you know here and there and use of force by the police to crack down on protesters but what we're seeing today is that repression has got more sophisticated and discreet and subtle and less bloody in the way that the authorities tend to use laws and use intimidation measures without hurting you there are people who got hurt and got forced disappeared but still the majority of dissidents that have been cracked down on they are in jail they have to fight court cases they have to read all these horrible messages they're in the now online they know that they are being snooped on by security agencies for some of them their families have fallen apart so all of this combination of socio-psychological warfare has made bloody crackdown unnecessary sometimes. And it makes it difficult for activists to counter repression. Yeah, and this, I mean, really resonates um, with, I think, the changing face of authoritarianism, as you mentioned before, that, you know, it's not just Thailand, but this is a broader trend. And I think on that note, what's quite interesting, and I know that you've been working on this before, is the question of the Pegasus scandal in Thailand, something that happened, and correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, was it a couple of years ago when it became a big thing? It was during the actual student process where people started realising that they are being followed. But could you tell us a bit more about the whole Pegasus issue in Thailand? And would this really fit the bill of, the, of this kind of new mode or model of digital repression that's mm. happening in Thailand these days? I mean, we're, we're talking about surveillance, right? Surveillance is an old practice of the states, if you like. But I think what Pegasus brings with it is the level and the depth of surveillance. But let me just tra trace back a bit in terms of digital surveillance in, in Thailand. Pegasus is just the latest technology being used against dissidents. As far as evidence goes, the first recorded spyware being procured by the Thai security forces emerged, I think, in 2013, 14 even before the coup in, in 2014. But absolutely after 2014, the military and the police had the upper hand and access to financial resources to buy new gadgets. And so you start to see emerging reports here and there that um, in 2013, the police allegedly bought a spy system from a hacking team, which is an Italian uh, company. And then 2014, the military bought something called Remote Control System or Galileo. And then 2020, ISOC was reported, found by Citizen Lab actually in Canada, that they started to buy um, spyware that was a um, predecessor of Pegasus, right? 
this series of spyware uh, procurements basically indicated that Thai dissidents and opposition politicians have been monitored by at least security forces for quite some time. Now, there are anecdotes here and there that, for example, some people who got summoned after the 2014 coup when they were at a military camp, they would be presented with dossiers, like basically big folders of documents of what they have been doing. So the, the monitoring is quite systematic, even though it's just the paper base back then, right? And there were reports of activists' emails and private messages being hacked or at least being seen by state entities. So now you have to match the procurement um, and, and the procurement evidence is there. The uh, opposition party uh, move forward, just presented this evidence of procurements of seeming spywares last year, but you have to match the evidence of procurement with, I mean, we, we don't have actual evidence from the authorities who they use this spyware against, right? But um, stories from activists sometimes show that they suspected that they have been followed. So that's Pegasus and its predecessors. But they think uh, one of the things that have been overshadowed by the sexiness, the catchiness of uh, Pegasus conversation is actually um, men powered monitoring of social media feeds day in and out. So uh, we're talking about tens of thousands of security forces, police officers, military officers, some of them are underpaid. So they have to monitor social media feeds. And sometimes what I observe is that without this system of monitoring of social media feeds of activists, the cyber troops that are behind the information operation campaigns wouldn't know uh, what they could post in response to activist posts, right? So there's someone has to monitor all these things. So that, I think, social media um, monitoring, ban-based or recently automated is a crucial, very, very important surveillance tool. And how does this affect Thai people, you know, on a database basis. We know that obviously there was the wave of the student-led protests in 2020-21, and that has fizzled out. How much of a factor was the digital repression in, in all this? Digital repression plays a role, but there are many contributing factors. And sometimes digital repression shapes how this factor contributes to the ineffective mobilization of anti-government movements, right? So let, let me just unpack this. Let's start from an individual level of activists who have been monitored, charged, and attacked online by trolls at the same time, right? So one person can experience these three forms of digital repression at the same time. Now, think about yourself. I think the most burdensome aspect of this is going to the courts. Many activists got a dozen of charges 
And sometimes these charges are uh, based on their posts on the internet and their involvement in running a protest campaign offline. So it's a combination of on and offline activities. But let's say that you face at least 12 charges, right? That means you have no time to do anything. Today you go to a court and tomorrow you go to the other court and it keeps repeating every day. And not to mention the fact that if you are charged with 112, chances you will be detained, even though you haven't been indicted, you will be detained. And these days, the courts do not easily grant bails to activists. So you'll be in jail. So basically, going through these several court cases, and at the same time, you realize that you're being followed online and offline too. Your social media account has been monitored, your phone is probably hacked, and you're being tailed by plainclothes police. And on top of that, whatever you post on Twitter, that would be someone reposted and this new post is taken out of context, you feel completely misunderstood, and sometimes you're being shamed as a slut. Uh, if you're a woman activist, you are being called names, and your families feel ashamed of you. So that's one person. If you have hundreds and thousands of supporters of the movement, and the stories that we often hear come from prominent activists, but I know that they are supporters of the movement who are just normal people, who uh, are street vendors, who are uh, just a normal university or even high school students. So they experience at least legal harassment, right? So when all of these individual troubles combine, it hinders it makes you think twice if you want to do anything politically and i can give you one example the story that is shared with me by a seasoned activist who organized protest events quite regularly so basically he said it's getting very very difficult to find someone who's willing to give public speech during a demonstration, basically because the police would be there taking pictures, recording their voices, and their names would be posted online together with the PR poster. All of this is evidence for lawsuit. So it's, it's a risk. The whole movement is being hindered. Whatever they do, it's difficult for them to get any volunteers or committed supporters. So that's on the level of movement. On the broader spectrum, a main factor of decline in public traction is that movements these days get very fragmented because they are consisted of small units that promote their own agenda. So that's that has nothing to do with digital repression. But digital repression can exacerbate that by basically information operations, for example, can help deepening the fragmentation within movement. It can deepen distrust in leadership if that leader is being basically framed as lacking moral integrity, so on and so forth. So it contributes to the decline of public interest or even trust that the movement would bear or yield any outcome. So I think that on top of a broader political context that when it comes to election, ruling parties have more toolkits in terms of keeping or sustaining their power.
Yeah, that's a really sobering account of what is happening in Thailand today in terms of the digital repression and the effects it has on the Thai population. And as you said, I think part of the big problem is because of the deep sociopolitical polarization in Thailand, achieving some kind of critical mass is already an issue. As you said, if you have this digital repression that can effectively push further fragmentation, even within the smaller groups rising against the regime in power, it really doesn't seem like there are many ways forward. Unfortunately, we are really out of time. So if I was to ask you a million dollar question, how can people protect themselves against this digital repression? There are two broad categories of countermeasures, right? One is defensive and the other is offensive. Defensive meaning that you have to protect yourself whenever you go online. You cannot take um, social media space for granted that you can do anything, you know, transparently and no one would follow you or would not try to tap into your information, leverage that for political gains. These are technological problems with technological solutions. So you can use VPN, you can hide your identities, you don't have to use your real name, so on and so forth, right? And I think there are trainings on digital security for activists and human rights defenders. And as I said, these are technical problems, if you like, with solutions. Now, I think a broader scale of if you want to approach this issue of digital repression more systematically, more structurally, you have to think in terms of offensive because surveillance in even information operations and legal persecution are based on political institutions. So basically there are institutions that execute them. They are legal basis of these actions and there's financial support for these actions. And I think if you want to tackle digital repression in the long run, you need to take legal actions. Basically, you have to push for uh, legal amendments. In the case of Thailand, it would be Computer Crimes Act. And this is, I think, the most vulnerable spot for civil society because they think that once the law has passed, there's no point to discuss about that anymore. I mean, there are organizations that discuss about the problematicness of the CCA, Computer Crimes Act, but there's not enough collective efforts to basically change that for the better. It's actually going to the opposite direction. The abuse of the CCA is getting worse by day. So I think, you know, that there should be legal actions and these have to be coordinated. So far in Thailand, you have cases of victims of information operation campaigns suing the military as we speak, right? There are at least two victims are suing the military. Victims of Pegasus are filing complaints against the NSO, which is the Israel-based company that manufactures Pegasus, because there's no evidence against the Thai government just yet. So the lawsuit against the government is quite difficult. But I think these are good signs. Uh, the fact that civil society pushed back against digital repression through legal actions. Now, I think the second step is also necessary and it is emerging in Thailand. And this is parliamentary action, meaning that you need constituents, voters, putting pressure 
on members of parliament to basically tackle digital repression for real and in a sustainable way, not just a one-time debate in the parliament and that's it. So you need parliamentarian oversight of budget allocated to information operations, to purchasing spyware, so on and so forth. You need committee that works on checking policies, making sure that any digital policies have to safeguard citizens' well-being in digital space, not to make it worse for them. Now, I think last but not least, in terms of social action, all of this legal and parliamentary action could be only possible when there's enough pressure from society. I think um, the more people talk about it and the more people are aware that this is a serious problem, not only about privacy, but it's actually affecting our everyday life and you could be a victim one day. So you need to mobilize social pressure in order to make legal and parliamentary actions possible. Well, thank you very much for that. I'm glad that we are finishing on a slightly more positive note in a sense that there are actually effective ways of how to first try to protect yourself against forms of digital repression and second to really try to fight it in some ways. And as you outlined, some of these measures are not that dissimilar to what the Thai government is trying to do to suppress the dissent. So it's really good to know that there are some ways to really do something about this. So thank you very much for joining today's podcast. It's a real shame that we don't have more time to talk about it, but I really enjoyed talking to you about this hugely important topic. So thanks again. My pleasure. And thanks again for inviting me. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. I'm Petra Alderman, Associate Researcher at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies at the University of Copenhagen and a postdoctoral research fellow at the International Development Department at the University of Birmingham. I've been talking today to Janjira Sombat Punsuri, an Assistant Professor and Project Leader at the Institute of Asian Studies at Chulalongkorn University in Thailand and a research fellow at the German Institute for Global and Area Studies in Germany. Thank you very much for listening. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.